Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week in the studio we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us down the line we have a special treat, Spiked columnist and author of the forthcoming book Beyond Grievance, Rakib Hassan. Hello, thanks for having me. Coming up on the show today we'll be talking about the rail strikes, grooming gangs, the anniversary of Brexit and trans activists' war on women. So this week, Britain has experienced some of the biggest rail strikes for 30 years. Workers with the RMT union are all on strike for a bigger pay rise and for job security. Tom, what have you made of this? Uh, Well, I think the strikes are definitely worth supporting. Wrote a piece on Spike this week to that effect. I mean, a lot of these workers are three years into a pay freeze. They're looking to get, um, again, kind of some sort of guarantee that there won't be compulsory redundancies, which are being talked about under the auspices of modernisation on the railways. Um, And I think this could be a flavour of things to come insofar Mm. as more and more people really struggling with this cost of living crisis and effectively being told that they've got to put up with a real terms pay cut. Um, In many situations where people have been struggling for quite a long time, um, there's obviously been a lot of discussion in the media this week. I think the attempts to kind of discredit these strikes and the RMT have gotten increasingly desperate. I mean, we've all heard the one about train drivers and how much they earn by this point, despite the fact that the RMT doesn't even represent that many train drivers. A lot of these people are making kind of money in the low 30s. Mm. um, And a lot of them are making a lot less than that. People are really struggling. I think it's revealed a lot. I think, I mean, the strikes, there's the strikes themselves and then there's been the reaction to it. I think as whenever anything like comes up like this, I think it demonstrates just how sort of um, the rights kind of attachment to freedom and democracy only goes so far, certainly when it means the right to strike. I also find a lot of this kind of discussion of all of these rail workers have just been kind of hoodwinked by these um, shady Marxist union barons, a quite interesting thing from a lot of people who were involved in the Brexit discussion and would push back on the idea that people didn't know what they were voting for. There's an overwhelming mandate for these strikes in that case. But then you've also got the kind of bourgeois left, who I can't have been the only person who was quite struck by the fact that um, they're quite selective in what form of working class power they appreciate. Mm. So if it's um, working class people agitating for better pay and working conditions, it's within that kind of trade union structure that they know and like, it's great. Thumbs up, we'll show up at a picket line, all the rest of it. And yet if it's some of the very same people, given the fact that the RMT was a very staunchly pro-Brexit union agitating for Brexit, it's racist and terrifying and they want nothing to do with it. I mean, a lot of the kind of Corbynistas actually tried to cancel a few RMT members over the course of the Brexit wars. Um, so it showed up a lot of hypocrisies on all sides. But I think the underlying message of it, you know, we can get too overexcited about what are significant. Part of the reason these strikes are so significant is because this kind of trade union action is often conspicuous by its absence yeah, these it's days. incredibly rare. But nevertheless, um, I think it is to be supportive because, it, again, it's um, people not wanting to be pushed around in a situation where they are expect- being expected to put up with less. Yeah, I mean, Rakib, you know, we're in this cost of living crisis. I mean, part of that is inflation, of course, but the other part of it is that wages have not been rising for actually a long time. You know, workers have had a raw deal lately, right? Well, it's true, Fraser, that in the UK economy, uh, wage growth has been largely unimpressive in recent times. Uh, I definitely agree with many of the points that Tom has made there. I think actually you've, you've seen that undemocratic tendencies um, which do exist on on the political right. Uh, There's a great deal of hypocrisy where they talk about the left being quite undemocratic, especially the liberal left. Uh, But I've seen people talk about banning 
uh, the right to strike, mm. which is which is quite remarkable. People talking for the fundamental weakening of trade unions. That's already taken mm-hmm. place. Uh, compared to other countries, our trade unions generally are nowhere near as strong, uh, especially in terms of their collective bargaining position. So I think that what this really exposes is that compared to countries such as Germany, which has that kind of co-deterministic model where you have a, a more cooperative economic culture between government, trade unions and businesses, in the UK, we still have a fairly confrontational and adversarial culture. And unfortunately, that means that in terms of our economy functioning accordingly and avoiding these kind of industrial disputes, it's very difficult to do that with that kind of culture being embedded. Thinking about the confrontation, there's been some quite funny kind of confrontations with Mm. uh, Mick Lynch has become a bit of a celebrity. Mick Lynch, the sort of head of the RMT, people have enjoyed his kind of set twos in in the media. I mean, we can actually, let's look a little clip of some of those. Some of your members will still stay on the picket lines. What will they do if agency workers try to cross those picket lines? Well, we will picket them. What do you think we'll do? We run a picket line and we'll ask them not to go to work. Do you not know how a picket line works? What do they do anyway? (laughs) Richard, you do come up with the most remarkable twaddle sometimes, I've got I to say. Say, well, 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 uh, I didn't say you were a Marxist. With, with I'm that saying that you're nonsense. being accused of being a Marxist. Let me show you your, what I believe is your Facebook page. I want you to confirm or deny if this is your Facebook page. It's a picture, yes, of, Can it's you a picture see the of the hood from Thunderbirds. Can you see the likeness? And actually, Mick, you don't know anything about my background or my community or where I come from. So, I can't even see you. Know, you. I don't even know no, who you are. So there no. you go. Tom, what have you made of that, that side of things? Mm. The, you know, the journalists really being totally inadequate in the face of normal kind of trade unionists standing up for workers' rights. I mean, he definitely made mincemeat of a lot of people. I mean, it's one of the things that actually I've, I thought it was, a, it was a bit of a regret, I think, that some of the people from the kind of pro-Brexit trade union movement weren't more visible in that discussion. Mm. I mean, they were very marginal, even within the trade union movement, which more broadly is very bureaucratised, yeah. uh, very pro-Remain, um, very middle class and kind of managerial in many respects. But there was this element um, who were, in many cases, is some of the more powerful advocates for Brexit and obviously evaded all of those kind of Tory caricatures. I think that was part of the reason that they were often kept out of that particular discussion. I thought it was interesting when Mick Lynch was on Robert Peston this week and Brexit came up very briefly and then they kind of moved on because it doesn't really suit the narrative. I suppose on the flip side, there's also been this um, aspect from not just the kind of bourgeois leftists, but even the sort of liberal left, who are kind of getting off on this kind of thing, which is kind of fascinating, despite the fact um, that in so many respects, um, they don't have much in common (laughs) politically or otherwise um, with some of the people who are out on strike this week. So it has become a kind of media spectacle to a certain extent, but you know, you can't help but take some delight in the way he was kind of cutting through a lot of these um, supposedly very esteemed political journalists like a hot knife through butter. That was mm. quite in- enjoyable. I think it's interesting, like, because a lot of the attack lines they tried to throw out them, it's, and there's a lot of talk recently about the sort of return of the 1970s. We've touched on this a little bit here insofar as the people making that accusation in order to try and demonise the strikes. You just wonder what planet they're on. You know, we live in a fundamentally different time now. I think it was for every 100 days lost to strike action in 1979, it's like one day is the equivalent in 2019, yeah. which is last year that they had numbers for trade union membership has plunged. Um, and so this attempt to try and, often on the part of Tories, kind of pose as these mini Thatchers, it's just a way of kind of getting their rocks off rather than actually dealing with the, the situation as it presents itself. But I think then on the other side, there is this kind of uh, people getting a bit ahead of themselves on the left as if to say that, you know, this is some great high watermark and all the rest of it, when, as we were talking about earlier, 
this kind of action, certainly this firm mm. um, and this committed, is broadly speaking quite conspicuous by its absence these days. And I think a lot of the kind of competing use of that 1970s <laughs> metaphor uh, shows that up in many respects. And Rakib, um, what have you made of the kind of reaction from the main parties? I mean, we have the Tories who, you know, earlier this year were promising us a, a high wage economy who are suddenly turning um, on these strikes. And then we have Labour who seem to be completely on the fence over this, you know, quite important industrial action. What have you made of that? Well, I think one thing um, that I, I, I would mention is the fact that the Conservative Party coalition is very different to the conventional one mm. after the 2019 UK general election. Uh, there, there are more Tory voting trade unionists, largely because of that Brexit realignment after the 2019 general election. So I, I do think the Conservatives, they need to think of... Um, they need to think in a more considered manner in terms of how it approaches industrial disputes. I have to say, I, I think that in, in the Labour Party, once again, a great deal of confusion um, from the Labour Parliamentary Party in terms of how to approach uh, these rail strikes. Just like on, on a host of issues, there is a, there is a fundamental lack of clarity. Uh, just moving on uh, in terms of looking at Mick Lynch's uh, performances in the media, <laughs> I think he's been absolutely brilliant. I think he's run rings around um, <laughs> various journalists and presenters who've been woefully out of their depth. Uh, I think parts of our media have been out of their depth. Uh, I've seen uh, the slogan, Labour isn't working. Labour hasn't been in power since 2010. So the reality of the matter is the Conservative Party has to take a degree of responsibility because I think that one of the primary responsibilities of, of any government is to maintain somewhat of a healthy relationship with influential and strategically important trade unions in order to ensure that these kind of disputes are avoided. And uh, just to tack on to that, I think, um, and you gestured to it there, Racket, but um, Labour's response to this, mm. I mean, this is what you always get from the Labour Party. Yeah. I think it's worth saying, you know, they never miss an opportunity not to get behind a strike. And I think in recent years as well, because the party has become so middle class, it's become so paternalistic, it doesn't really know what to do with genuine expressions of working class power. It kind of reacts to them, comes out in hives. And of course, you've got Keir Starmer, who is chasing... Mm whatever he believes to be the median voter. It's not yeah. entirely clear who that person is. Someone who both wants to stand in front of the union flag and take the knee. I don't really know what it is that he <laughs> wants to carve out here. So they've just been completely sort of bamboozled by it. Um, and at the same time, as you say, there is also that, that again, dreadful response on the, on the right of politics, which is to try and undermine these rights, as, as Racky was talking about. You know, the talk about bringing in agency workers to, to break strikes and mm. more significantly, in some respects, this idea that you have to maintain some kind of minimum service. So again, people who like to talk about the state not butting in too much <laughs> in relation to how people organise um, mm. and how people's kind of freedom of association and allowing people to, again, kind of uh, fight for themselves. There's a bit of hypocrisy there, certainly. There's so much I want to do this summer. And with the sun finally shining in the UK, I decided now would be the perfect time to get my camera out. To take the best pictures possible, I've started learning with the Wondrium series, Fundamentals of Photography. I can't recommend it enough. You're guided through the series by a wonderful teacher, National Geographic photographer Joel Sartore. After 24 detailed and fun episodes, he not only explains the concepts behind composing that perfect shot, he also demonstrates how to actually do it with some incredible eye-catching examples. It's definitely encouraged me to try and be a bit more adventurous with my shots. So why don't you try it yourself on Wondrium? 
Wondrium is the subscription video service with content on just about any topic you can think of. With Wondrium, you can explore audio and video courses on hundreds of topics taught by university professors. There are documentaries to help you learn more about the world around you. And you'll find video tutorials that teach you new skills like cooking, learning a language, and more. All of Wondrium's content is world-class and credible. It's presented by experts who all know their stuff. I want you to sign up for Wondrium today. Wondrium is offering Spiked Podcast listeners a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. To get this offer, you need to visit wondrium.com slash spiked. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash spiked. Sign up today. So this week we've had a, another horrific report about grooming gangs, this time around um, Greater Manchester. I mean, one of the details that has come out is that a notorious grooming gang leader was in fact a employee at Oldham Council, which is just completely shocking. Once again, we kind of hear about these kind of institutional failures of the police, of local authorities to essentially protect um, young women, young people in general from, you know, avoidable, avoidable crime. I mean, Rakeeb, could you set out a little bit for us what's um, different about this report or what we what what's new that we've learned? Because this is obviously this scandal has been going on for for years now and has affected you know young people in all kinds of towns across the country. Well, Fraser, much of it is an all too familiar story, uh, if truth be told. Uh, one of the reports that was uh, published this week was an independent assurance review um, up in Oldham. And as you said, one of the most remarkable stories uh, detailed in in this uh, new report was the fact that you had a grooming gang ringleader employed by Oldham Council as a welfare rights officer, Mm. which is absolutely remarkable. And the police, Greater Manchester Police, failed to inform his employers about his past, which included being arrested for child sexual assault which is just absolutely astonishing. And the report found more generally that up in Oldham, the kind of multi-agency uh, structures that were in place to maximise child protection, especially those who are at, uh, who are at risk, uh, vulnerable young people at risk of child sexual exploitation and abuse, that those systems had fundamentally failed. So in that sense, it is an all-too-familiar story. There was also a new report out uh, in in regards to Rotherham in South Yorkshire. Uh, Similar findings in terms of police officers. It finds that police officers were not well-equipped to cope with the widespread child sexual abuse that was taking place in the town over a period of 15 years. But this this is a story that can be told in many parts of the country. But what I would say personally is that what it really shows is that that destructive combination of political correctness and identity politics mm. combined with those victim-blaming tendencies among irresponsible public officials. As a result of that, the most vulnerable in society, especially young white girls who are who are from dysfunctional family backgrounds, history of parental neglect, relatively isolated in the care system, they've been severely let down, Fraser. Yeah. And just to pick up on that kind of identity politics point, Tom, I mean, it seems that time and time again, it's a case of we've got the wrong kind of perpetrator 
Um, you know, people don't want to be accused of racism by suggesting that some of these men um, might be doing what they're doing and the wrong kind of victim mm -hmm. with white, white working class girls, as you suggest, Rakeep, you know, not a kind of fashionable identity group to be looking out for. Well, it's, it is amazing. I mean, as, as you both alluded to here, is that effectively political correctness in not just this case of Oldham or in the case of any of these individuals, but all of them across the board, you know, we're talking about Rochdale, Rotherham, mm. Oxford, Huddersfield, Telford, the list goes on and on and mm. on. These kind of individual chapters in this growing grim story. Time and again, political correctness is basically put ahead of protecting the most vulnerable people imaginable in society. Mm. Um, young, working class, poor girls, often in and out of care, wards of the state much of the time, um, who have often taken, tried to take as many opportunities as they can to actually, you know, report these things to police. There was that one striking finding, I believe, in the Olden Report, um, do correct me if I'm wrong, of a 12-year-old girl called Sophie, in quote marks, who mm. goes to the police station, having just been raped, and is basically told to come back when she sobers up. God. I mean, this sort of thing is, is dreadful. And we all know that the inertia around this issue is because of the fact that, statistically speaking, the grooming gang phenomenon is by and large Pakistani Muslim men. And for a very long time, that has terrified the um, uh, police authorities and uh, politicians in terms of even talking about this, let alone investigating it properly. Um, you see in, there was a previous report about Greater Manchester talking about the fear of inflaming racial tensions yeah. by um, tackling this issue Ooh. head on. And also there's the, the fear of accusations of racism, which have been levelled against any of the MPs who've tried to raise this issue. Sarah mm -hmm. Champion is probably the most uh, recent example, but there are others just hounded out really of frontline politics if they try and raise this particular issue. Um, and it's dreadful on so many different levels. As you say, are we going to have a hierarchy of victims in this particular way or a hierarchy of perpetrators? Mm. Is what is a crime less serious, even one as heinous and as evil as this because of the potential kind of optics yeah. consequences of investigating it? Um, and similarly for the victims, does it count less? And you do think about how in recent years, say something like the Me Too movement or the Pestminster scandal yeah. um, would dominate the news for months, weeks, all the rest of it. Some of it serious allegations, a lot of it not often. You know, it's cases of kind of clumsy commons and a hand on a knee at a, yeah. a, a Westminster event or whatever. That is a big, you know, conversation, soul-searching. How are we going to sort out our culture? And yet this grooming gang scandal rumbles on year on, year on, and it makes almost no impact on the discussion more broadly people yeah. talk about it but then they kind of move on very quickly and that's morally obscene yeah and i just do not know how we can pull back from that really because again there's another review there are lessons learned i'm sure things are implemented on the local level but as a society yeah. more broadly and as, as a polity we don't talk about this stuff properly and it, as this report has demonstrated we desperately need to and Rakeev, I mean, you know, race relations is often given as the reason why we shouldn't talk about these things or why things are not followed up. I mean, hasn't doesn't that just make things a million times worse to cover them up rather than to deal with them head on, deal with them like you would do any other crime? No, it's absolutely remarkable. I think it, one particular operation that springs to mind is Operation Augusta um, up in Greater Manchester, which was prematurely closed down. Um, by Greater Manchester Police with the support of Manchester City Council. Uh, this was looking at um, child uh, group-based child sexual abuse and exploitation taking place in Greater Manchester. Um, in terms of the victims, largely vulnerable white working class girls. In terms of uh, the suspects, 
men of predominantly Pakistani Muslim origin, uh, police officers uh, were wary of looking like they were targeting a minority group because they'd previously dealt with cases um, involving uh, men in the Kurdish origin local population. And in this case, much of the focus was on men of Pakistani heritage. And, 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 and they, they, they ultimately failed in their duties and were incredibly reluctant um, to pursue this, these investigations because they didn't want to look like that they were being racist or that they didn't want to look like they were targeting another ethnic minority group. And I, it, it really have to make this point that these public institutions, public sector workers, their primary responsibility is to maximise the protection welfare of those who are most vulnerable in society. But that's a classic case where the safety of the most vulnerable is being sacrificed on the altar of multicultural ideology. And Fraser, just pick up on that point you, you were making about yeah. making it worse. Isn't I think, it inflamed? Yeah, well, probably. this is things I'm old enough to remember when the grooming gangster on was a far-right myth. Yeah, right? yeah. I remember every so often, you know, you would have a you know, genuine far-right bigot would find themselves on Newsnight or something like that, talked about. Even Tommy Robinson was mm. talking about it on Newsnight. Exactly. They don't often appear anymore, partly because support for the far-right, to the extent that it did exist, has sort of collapsed in, in recent years, but also because it seems to be more of a cordon sanitaire these days for good or feel um but they would often talk about this stuff and it would be basically dismissed out of hand the reason i raise this is not to say that those people were vindicated in any meaningful sense the problem is the failure to talk about that means that the individuals who are willing to talk about that in many cases bad actors who who genuinely want to use this to stir up you know racial strife and hatred and all the rest of it will be the only ones talking about it. This is a common story you see in terms of radicalization, far-right radicalization amongst white working-class boys in the North, yeah. is this particular mm. issue. So we've got it completely the wrong way around. If yeah. you want to create a situation in which this discreet but very difficult and unpleasant issue needs to be dealt with, you need to deal with it. Otherwise, you do create a situation in which it will be used to smear all Muslims or all mm. Pakistani men or be used to genuinely try and divide up society. It's the failure to deal with it that risks inflaming tensions, not dealing with it, which is what they should have done in the first place. Absolutely. And Rakeem, do you want to add anything finally? I, I agree with Tom. I think that the, the way these cases of group-based um, child sexual exploitation have been fundamentally mismanaged, um, it's a gift for the far right, if I'm being completely honest. It emboldens the far right. Um, the problem is that the left, and uh, you know, I, I, I live, uh, I, was, I was raised and live in a predominantly working-class, uh, Labour-voting town. I was raised thinking that left-wing politics was all about protecting the most vulnerable in society, but I think the problem is that many people on the left don't want to engage with this issue because it fundamentally undercuts their white privilege narratives. If you're a fan of the Spike podcast, you'll have heard me talk about how important it is to have a VPN to protect your online privacy. But choosing a VPN you trust is equally as important. Now, I always do a lot of research into our sponsors, and I only ever recommend brands to Spike listeners that I believe in. I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market, and here's why. Number one, ExpressVPN doesn't log your activity online. Lots of cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to advertisers, but ExpressVPN doesn't do this. They've even developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. Number two, speed. ExpressVPN now uses Lightway, a new VPN protocol they've engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. 
I've tried loads of VPNs in the past and they can sometimes slow my connection. But ExpressVPN is always blazing fast and it lets me stream videos in HD quality with zero buffering. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart is how easy it is to use. You don't need any technical skills to get set up. Just fire up the app and tap one button to connect. That's it. Even your grandparents could do it. And it's not just me saying this. Business Insider, The Verge, and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN I use and trust. Use our link expressvpn.com slash spiked today and you'll get an extra three months for free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked. Visit expressvpn.com slash spiked to learn more. So this week is the anniversary, the sixth anniversary of Brexit. Mm. In fact, today on the day we're recording this, Tom, Spike has always thought of Brexit as something to celebrate. <laughs> Do you want to explain why? Well, it does feel like it does need to be explained. <laughs> God almighty. Like, I mean, yeah. I just tweeted earlier about why happy Brexit day. You Name know. one benefit. Name <laughs> one benefit. Well, I've been bombarded by about 300 <laughs> remainers asking me, Name me one single benefit. That's a funny tick. But that's kind of indicative. I wrote about this on Spike this week. I mean, it's the sixth anniversary. It's not a round number or anything. But I yeah. think the reason it's worth talking about is because uh, it's so striking how uncelebrated mm. Brexit is. Um, I think, Spike think, I'm sure many more Brexiteers think, it was genuinely one of the most positive things that's happened in British politics, certainly in my lifetime, probably for a good period before that as well. It was a genuine blow for democracy. You've got to think back, you know, you had the entire political media elite, yeah. you know, the um, capitalist class, the lovies, everyone was, you know, preaching fire and brimstone as this happened. Barack Obama. Barack Obama was flown in, all that <laughs> stuff. And yet, British people, supposedly quite a conservative and risk-averse bunch, said, mm. no, actually, we want more democracy, we want more control, we want to bring politics back home. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it's a, it's, a, it's another kind of great step towards the democratisation of Britain in the in the kind of lineage of the levellers and the chartists and the suffragettes. It's a really important thing. And yet, the narrative that we have is mm. that it was this horrendous mistake whipped up by xenophobes and indulged, unfortunately, by idiots. That's kind of what's happened. Um, and I think it's just really important that we do sort of market and celebrate. We're in a really bizarre situation in which history, in this case, very recent history, has been written by the losers. Yeah, They still really have control over the narrative, and their narrative is that it was basically like in a mini-1930s, which desperately needs to be um, reversed at the uh, nearest opportunity. So I think that's something which just needs to be said, which is for all of this discussion, name me one benefit of Brexit. I mean, remainers often say that after you've probably listed several benefits. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. a kind of rhetorical a question that never that never actually ends. And while they start talking to you about how they've lost their mobile roaming data or something like mm. that, I mean, it, it's ultimately I, I, quite I ridiculous. I stood in a long queue at the airport. <laughs> Once or whatever. <laughs> but the, the be- Brexit is a benefit in itself, it's mm. in as far as it's about democracy. It's not about immigration. It's not about the economy. Um, it's not about roaming charges. It's not about, uh, you know, forcing Apple to make a different type of charger, as is now being discussed in the <laughs> European Union and some people are celebrating. It's about control. Yeah. Um, and it's about being able to decide. And it's b- about having a proper choice at an election because the politicians you elect can actually do stuff Mm. um, far beyond the remit that they were able to previously. So I I think in the face of all of that, Brexit is still very much worth celebrating. It was a great moment and we really shouldn't let it be uh, sort of libeled uh, or forgotten, which I think we could easily be at risk of doing. Definitely. And Rakeeb, I mean, one of the big themes of the Remainers was that Brexit was racist 
and voting for Brexit was going to unleash this torrent of vile kind of Nazism. There's going to be <laughs> pogroms and, you know, <laughs> ethnic minorities are going to be chased out of the country. <laughs> what's the what's the truth? What's really happened since we voted leave and since we left? Well, I think that we've seen the likes of David Lammy compare, for example, the pro-Brexit um, European Research Group in the Conservative Party with Nazi Germany and apartheid South Africa. That, that's how ridiculous it has been, some of the commentary has been. People describing a democratic exercise mm. as some mm. kind of fascist coup, which is absolutely remarkable. Uh, the reality of the matter is, when you look at the kind of places that voted Brexit, my hometown of Luton, mm. which is incredibly super diverse in ethnic and religious sense, voted leave uh, 56.5%. Uh, people are still amazed when I tell them Slough voted leave. Mm. Uh, Slough voted leave, Bradford voted leave, so did Hillingdon. Um, and, and there's there's uh, one ward um, in Hounslow called Austerley and Spring Grove. Uh, people, if, if they are familiar with it, they'll know that as a very notable Indian origin presence, relatively affluent as well, great, uh, high rate of home ownership, uh, uh, v- delivered a leave vote above 60%. The, the reality of the matter is Brexit was actually not only a cross-class enterprise, it was also a multi-ethnic one uh, as well. So the, the, all, this idea about this being um, an indication of uh, the degree of white nostalgia um, in the UK, it, which I think that that was something that Sir Vince Cable uh, suggested that that was a possibility, just complete and utter nonsense. Uh, I think what you'll see with um, the people who voted Brexit, there's that shared desire for, for the restoration of national sovereignty. Um, many wanted a higher degree of fairness uh, within our immigration system. They mm. felt that EU migrants were the beneficiaries of preferential treatment under freedom of movement. Um, they felt that that wasn't particularly fair on migrants from Commonwealth countries outside of the European Union. So th- th- there was various factors at play. So I-, I felt that much of the pro-Remain establishment, especially in politics and media, they just wanted to reduce reduce this as some kind of um, racist, bigoted provincial enterprise. When you actually saw that a number of cities uh, which are multi-ethnic actually voted out. Uh, voted for Brexit. So I found, I found that the moment that the result was delivered and t- t- up to now, much of the commentary continues to be of a particularly low quality. Mm. It's all the immigration picture as well. Yeah. Is, you know, far different from the kind of xenophobic hermit kingdom we were supposed to become <laughs> after, after Brexit. I know you've written about how um, in the past year in particular, I think the immigration numbers and the composition of who are mm. being able to work in the UK has changed. Want to say a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that if you actually look at the sort of inward migration composition, how that's changed in the post-Brexit setting, uh, w- we're now seeing more um, uh, migrants come from Commonwealth countries such as India, uh, Nigeria, Pakistan. So I think what you see there is that under um, uh, the sort of post-Brexit skills-based immigration system, we actually have a, a, a relatively, um, we, we, we still have a relatively open immigration system. It's just that it is, it is more well-ordered, mm. um, in my view. And I think it's a fairer system because irrespective of which continent you live on, people are being subjected to the same assessments and procedures. So I do feel that contrary to people saying that Brexit, this is all about pulling the drawbridge, becoming uh, relatively... Um, isolated, insular island. That is simply not the case. 
um, within that kind of Brexit electorate, you could say there are some people who are relatively pr- protectionist, but then you also have people who are the, who are the more kind of, you could say that sort of outward looking uh, global Britain pro-Brexit internationalists. But of course, if you if you talk about all these various sub-electorates, the, 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 much of our pro-Remain commentary are not remotely mm. interested in that level of detail at all. One thing that's worth remembering is, at least for the response to Brexit from the Remain establishment, from the political class and all the rest of it, it was never really about the European Union. Yeah. I'm sure many of us have had this experience where you get mm. talking to someone about the European Union and it becomes, who are very passionately anti-Brexit and it becomes very clear they don't know very much about the European Union <laughs> whatsoever. I think for, that, for the high information voters. Exactly. Yeah. For these people Sorry. who are so much smarter than the people of <laughs> provincial Britain who have voted for this thing. They don't, they don't know any of it. Um, and there's a reason for that is because this was always for them a proxy, really. Mm. Um, they were horrified by Brexit because the OICs had acted out of line. Um, all of mm. those attitudes, which we all knew were there, but have become yeah. very politically incorrect in a sense to mention in polite society, that effectively most people in Britain are idiots mm. and that they're scum and that they're kind of racist, or at least they have these tendencies and they shouldn't have those tendencies ever kind of pricked or massaged at any point because otherwise all hell will break loose. All of that became bursting out into the open. The reason they hate Brexit is not because they love the European Union, it's because they, they're really uncomfortable with democracy. Yeah. Um, and that's been one of the great things about Brexit. It's really clarified where those battle lines are. Um, and whilst um, I think there's still a lot of work to do in relation to properly democratising Britain, taking that spirit and making sure that it is pushed even further, I think in and of itself, knowing that, I think has been a, a great boon in many respects. And finally, on Sunday, when women's rights activists um, went to protest in Bristol, they were greeted by some kind of anarchist types, I guess you could say, in black masks, screaming at them, screaming misogynistic obscenities. And this has become a kind of depressingly familiar trope now. Let's have a look at a clip from this most recent demo. You have been literally just attacked by our kids, yeah? Go home, get in the sea, die out, you're dinosaurs, dinosaurs, fossils, yeah? You're gonna die out. Some brave young men there trying to menace middle-aged women in the round. I mean, it's Tom, what is wrong with these people? This happens. Just... This, ha- this happens time and time again. I mean, this particular, the, this particular kind of anarchist, um, anti-fascist lot, effectively, who have shown up at a couple of these big gender critical demonstrations. I mean, this was, I think, it was an it was an event called Let Women Speak, yeah. organised at, at, in Bristol, um, and these blokes show up. It similarly happened in Manchester recently, mm. um, where the same group of feminists or a similar group of feminists were trying to give a speech around uh, Emily Pankhurst's statue. Um, and these uh, black pampers, as they've been um, dubbed, <laughs> despite this, not entirely <laughs> sure what that means, but I find it funny, uh, tried to get in the way. I mean, you have this um, spectacle of people who claim to be on the right side of history, mm. who claim to be the Be Kind Brigade, effectively, dressed head to toe in black, shouting obscenities, often sexualized insults and kind of like, you know, veiled rape threats, effectively, at, um, women who are trying to organise around women's rights and claiming that they're on the right side of history, claiming yeah. that the other side are dinosaurs, as you heard yeah. in that particular... And, and they're going to die out. And they're going to die out. Um, this escalated to the point where um, a lot of the, the uh, feminists who were there ended up being essentially barricaded inside a pub by police mm. because they wouldn't go away. And I think this is not... there. There is something about this which I think is very, very telling, which is to say there is a strain of deep misogyny and authoritarianism within the sort of trans rights movement, Mm. quote unquote. Um, 
it is increasingly takes this particular form and can often spill out not just from social media and the kind of threats and horrible messages that a lot of people have received, but actually in uh, pub, in public life, in public spaces. Yeah. And it's been going on for a very long time. And I think in that you kind of just, you just see how ridiculous it is to have people who claim to be the good guys and yet they're carrying on like this. Even just the look of them tells you that they don't deserve that status, definitely. Ricky, are they on the right side of history, do you think? Oh, not in a million years. Not in a million years. <laughs> I've been saying it for some time, and I've, I've, I've written about this um, for us at Spike. I, I've always been saying that the transgender movement is fundamentally misogynistic. Uh, there's very clear attempts to erase, uh, to erase uh, conventional understandings of womanhood um, in, in, from a, a great deal of biological illiteracy uh, there as well. And I think that what we saw, that the scenes in Bristol comes as no surprise to me, that many of these uh, male um, pro-trans zealots, they're they're fundamentally anti-women, and they're more than happy to be uh, exceptionally aggressive uh, towards women, who are are ultimately simply uh, defending their rights uh, in terms of safe spaces, um, Mm. sensitive safe spaces, where that might be public uh, toilets, you're um, also talking about rape crisis centres, domestic violence uh, sanctuaries. I, I also feel that the radical transgender movement, it, it could destroy women's sports. It, it really could. But I'm glad to see that there's a bit of a pushback, especially when it comes to the case of uh, Emily Bridges. I, I believe that's, um, that's the name in, 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 in the cycling world. So I'm, I'm really glad to see now that there is a robust cultural pushback against this deeply authoritarian and uh, anti-women movement. Yeah, I mean, Tom, there is a bit of a pushback, but also it, it's strange how this movement has become kind of institutionalised mm. so so quickly. Mm. It's, it's odd to see, you know, kind of black-clad anarchists essentially arguing from the same hymn sheet as the Church of England, yeah. you know, sections of the Conservative Party, mm. <laughs> Uh, every kind of establishment institution you can name, the BBC. I think that's the problem in a way is because, the, in a sense, these people are a bit of a convenient foil. You mm-hmm. know, even the kind of more mainstream organisations can say this is what not what we're about. The issue is that the ideology, which seeks to basically erase the status of sex full stop, I yeah. mean, any kind of sex-based distinctions, which is, as Racky was saying, is so crucial to uh, women's spaces, but also to sports, all kinds of things. It's also crucial to understanding reality mm. uh, as a concept. <laughs> they want to erase this. And this is something which, and Joe Bartosz pointed this out in a piece for us this week about this particular protest, is that um, you know the local council in Bristol is a Stonewall diversity champion, yeah. as I think is the local police service. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that meant they were a soft touch in this situation or anything like that, but um, the ideas that these outriders represent on mm-hmm. certain on a certain level have already been entirely accepted by the establishment. It's one of those ideologies that eat, the more you try to push back at it, the more it seems to just creep through anyway. And I think that's one thing which is going to be the much bigger and knottier problem um, is because of the fact that it has already become common sense and kind of enforced Mm. within a lot of these elite institutions. And that's going to take a very long time to unpick. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.